right, Sam. I found something that I just have to show you. Jacob, not again, for Christ's sake. No, not that. Okay. So, in all of our weird searching and Googling, I found this video. Okay, not that? No, a different video. Okay. And I just, I've got to show it to you. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. It's an elevator with a lady. Yes, that's Elisa Lamb. It's a lady on an elevator. She's, like, standing in the corner. Looks like the door's stuck. Um, now she's going back to the door. Okay, whoa! What the hell was that? Yeah, she, like, peeks out from the door like she's scared of something or looking for something. Now she's hiding in the corner. Now she's hiding in the corner. Okay, and we're going to do a little another step and peek out here. We're peeking out the door here. She's hanging out in the doorway. And... She's now, like, sneaking. Okay, she jumped again. She jumped, like, jumped out of the elevator. Now doing some, some box steps back into the elevator. So it looks like and she's... And out of the elevator. So it looks like she's, like, hiding from something, right? Or, like, playing a game. Uh, what is this? Now you can't see her. Yeah, she's kind of hiding behind the wall. But her hand's there, so you know she's still there. And the door... The door's still open. Right, the door to the elevator never closes. Okay. Now she's, like, got her hand up by her head... She's looking impatient because the elevator apparently is broken. But she's still in the hallway. Right, still in the hallway. Still looking away from the elevator. Now she's stepping back in. Oh, God, she looks so upset. Here, push some more buttons. Right, she's pushing all of the buttons, it pushing seems like. all the buttons. And she looks really distraught. Yeah, she's really frantic. And when she walked back in, had her hands up by her head like that. I mean, she looked like kind of disgusted is all I know to say. Now she's going back in the hallway and leaning against the door a little more. Oh, now she's talking to somebody. Right, she's waving her hands well, around. Okay, yeah, that's not a normal hand gesture. It's like full on her fingers splayed, kind of. And now she's counting. She's like numbering things off on her fingers. It looks like she's telling somebody, like, all, like listing a bunch of things, maybe. Right, it's the door's very, still open. Door's still open. Right, it's a very unnatural hand movement. Yeah, completely. Okay, now she's walking away. I guess we're done. Yeah, and the door remains open. Yeah. Where'd she go? What happened to her? Do you want to know? Yeah, where is this? Well, it's a hotel. Where's the hotel? Well, in Los Angeles, California. Really? Hotel California? You knew it was going there. I knew it was going there. And now the elevator door closes. Hello and welcome to Just a Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And this week we're taking a look at the classic song and the legend surrounding it, Hotel California. Yeah, and the legend surrounding some hotels in California. Yeah, correct. So the Elisa Lamb case that we started the show talking about seems to be just the latest 
happening at one of these sort of mysterious beacons for all things sinful and underworldly. The hotel. The hotel. And this is a hotel mystery that the internet has run away with. Super fun to look into, but we'll get into all that in a minute. So hotels. Hotels, right. They're icky, apparently. I love going to hotels. I love going to hotels, too. There must be something wrong with us. I think we're staying at the right hotels or the wrong hotels. Depending on what you're looking for. Right. When I think hotels and creep factor, I can't help but think about Tower of Terror at Disney World, which we really can't get into because Disney World gets a show all to itself maybe one day, and the Eagles song, Hotel California. Right. It's a song that has its own set of urban legends and myths surrounding it. The song's mysterious, I think intentionally so, and people love to fill in the gaps. And why Google when you can speculate? So what are some of the the creme de la creme of the urban legends surrounding the song Hotel California by the Eagles. Yeah, there are some great ones because the song has some amazing illusions and lyrics. Yeah, I think it's a very literary song. Of course, yeah, the standard is a hotel and bad things are happening there. Well, that doesn't seem like a big jump or leap or anything. Like, it seems kind of like taking the song at face value. Exactly. That's what your um, uncle would probably tell you about. Or he might tell you this story, that it's really about Satanist. Oh, that definitely depends on the uncle. It depends on whether it's your uncle who's an accountant or your uncle who doesn't know how to button all of the buttons on his shirt. Creepy uncle seems like the more likely Satanist story. Probably so. So on the original vinyl album, in some of the artwork, there's a scene of kind of a party going on at this hotel. And the background, if you look, you can see Satan or a demon or our good old friend, Anton Levy. Anton Levy. And if you remember from our Satanic Panic episode, he is the head of the Church of Satan. Oh, that good old Anton. Of course he shows up for a party. People get this idea from the line, you know, they stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. Don't sing. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. And other lines like, this could be heaven or hell, or you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Right. So obviously they're talking about hell. Doesn't seem like this could be heaven or this could be hell really breeds the idea, lends itself to the idea that it's Satanist because it seems like that's a pretty determinate thing. There's not a lot of room for speculation if you're actually in hell. Right, but you might be fighting the beast. Another story your uncle might tell you after a few drinks is that this was actually about the Los Angeles Camarillo State Mental Hospital, whose nickname was the Hotel California. Okay, well, I like that story. That would probably be the uncle that I'd actually like to have drinks with that would tell me that story. Or the uncle that stayed there. Yeah, still the uncle I'd actually like to have drinks with. I bet he's got a colorful past. Those are two of the big ones. There are some really other crazy ones, like it was a... Fringy? Yeah, you could call it fringy. If those weren't fringe enough, like a hotel that was run by cannibals... <laughs> Who are in the habit of taking guests only to serve them up for dinner. Again, using the line, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And there's another widely speculated theory that it's kind of about drugs and a bad drug trip. Yeah, there's the great line that's misquoted all the time. It's the warm smell of Kalitas rising up through the air. And do you know what that's about? Pot. They're on it is. So it is. It's a slang term for the smell of burning marijuana. Um, and you know what? That one's not really that far off. Okay. So 
Now that we're done speculating, let's go to the source. What does the band say about this? So the Eagles are constantly hounded about what this song is about. And Don Henley told uh, Rolling Stone that it was kind of a political statement. The song was meant to be more of a symbolic piece about America in general. And lyrically, the song deals with traditional or classical themes of conflict, darkness and light, good and evil, youth and age, and the spirit versus the secular. I guess you could say it's a song about loss of innocence. Okay, so they're taking on some really classic themes and they're looking at the idea of selling out, coming of age. No, you're right. They, they do use all those themes. And it's interesting that they use the hotel as a metaphor for all of this. Well, it's actually a pretty fitting metaphor. The hotel has long been kind of associated with anonymity and the intersection of public and private life. It's a public space where you have privacy, which is a rare thing, and it offers sort of a safe house to people who might be participating in things that society as a larger body frowns upon. And recently there was a ruling made that hotel owners did not have to give up their register to any officer of the law who inquired about it without a warrant. And that actually was in Los Angeles. Yes, and it came down from the Supreme Court that this was no longer going to be the practice, that now hotels would be able to ask for a warrant if someone inquired about the guests staying there. And some of my favorite quotes about the nature of the hotel came down in the ruling. So writing the majority opinion, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote that hotels are not intrinsically dangerous, so there is no reason, she concluded, to require a guest book to be handed over without a warrant issued with judicial oversight. I mean, is she right? Are hotels not intrinsically dangerous? Well, according to Justice Anton Scalia, who wrote the minority opinion... Oh, definitely one of my (laughs) favorite Supreme Court judges. I have his action figure. Who doesn't? He describes hotels as... An obvious haven for those who trade in human misery. Such places provide housing to vulnerable transient populations and are particularly attractive sites for criminal activity ranging from drug dealing and prostitution to human trafficking. They offer privacy and anonymity on the cheap. They have been employed as prisons for migrants and served as rendezvous sites where child sex workers meet their clients under threat of violence. He just has a way with words. Oh, wordification. Yeah, so Scalia thinks that hotels are apparently akin to Satan again. Um, We're coming back to that. But yeah, basically anything bad that happens in society is more likely to happen at a hotel, according to Scalia. I'm sure he thinks that's where those homosexuals gather. Yeah, totally. But there's a lot of writing about the idea that hotels are dangerous, and it seems that most people who have studied them kind of think they are. For example, there is a scholar who wrote a book called Hotel in American History named A.K. Sandoval Strauss, and he states in his book that hotel keepers have long struggled to control and purify the experience of an overnight stay a struggle that pitted them against a veritable horde of adulterers, seducers, and prostitutes, burglars, and confidence men, who gravitated to the hotel because of the anonymity and temporary cover it provides. I just realized that con man means confidence man. That is incredible. I've never put that together. Right? Right? So if you pull a con, you're pulling a confidence? Yeah, you gain confidence in another person. Wow, let's start saying it. 
So that's interesting that hotels are seen in some ways as somewhere you're getting away, getting away from life, going to have fun. I mean, we stay at a hotel to just like, oh, we got rid of the kids and we get to get out. Not like that. They're, our kids are fine. Put Don't send CPS, please. We just put them in the kennel. Yeah. To some people, it's a place where you go to commit a crime, whether it be a drug deal or prostitution or murder well that's fair but i think that the idea is sort of the same it's you know when we're going on vacation we're going to do the things that we can't do on a regular basis with our kids like stay out past 10 we're still going to get away from the confines of our societal role And if you look at the criminal behavior that's taking place in hotels, that there's a lot of similarity in the motivation. They're going to go somewhere where they can get away with something. Right, and this is not a new idea. Oh, no. In 1836, a writer for the New York Mirror described hotels as a place where a chaotic collection of people and illicit agendas met and mingled. Places that drew... The beau and the bell, the merchant and the scholar, the poet, the editor, the Wall Street broker, ladies to meet their lovers, and tradesmen looking to finalize a deal. Again, this has just been going on for centuries. Hotels serve as a beacon for people looking to get away with something. And I think that it's safe to say that the offenses or transgressions carried out at hotels are as varied as the people who stay in them. Some of the things that happen in hotels are suicides. Right. And there actually is a lot of statistical data to back that up. There was a study done uh, by a research group using Las Vegas as a center that found a statistically significant difference in the suicide rate for local people, so people from that area, not travelers, who were staying in hotels compared to local residents staying at home. And it turned out that checking into a hotel raises your risk of suicide. So if we interpret this as some people interpret science, if you check into a hotel, you might kill yourself. By accident? No. Wait, on purpose. But by accident. I don't know. It's all very complicated. I can't follow that logic because it doesn't exist. Exactly. It's a correlation, but it's an interesting point that people are going to hotels on purpose with the plan to kill themselves. So I've looked at a lot of literature produced for people in the lodging and hospitality industry. My week has been so exciting. But it's a recognized problem among hotel owners that there is a high likelihood that in the course of your employment or ownership of a hotel, you will have to deal with a suicide. Or some of the reasons that they cite in these articles are the anonymity and privacy that are afforded to guests. I mean, think about it. As soon as you enter a hotel, you're presented with a key. And as soon as you get to your room, you get a do not disturb sign. So already you've got a way to keep people out with a lock and a way to make sure people don't even knock with a sign. And they also cite that People are separated from their loved ones who might otherwise intervene. And that seems to be the thing that really pushes them over the edge and why people have a higher rate of actually completing suicide at hotels. Fewer attempts, more completions. Maybe some people just want to be somewhere where they can't be discovered by their loved ones and their loved ones won't have to clean up the mess. That's another point that's brought up in a lot of these articles is that they know that there's regularly scheduled maid service. And that someone will eventually come in and find them. So they're not going to be, like, left out for months and months and no one knowing where they are. Like, if they went into the woods or whatever. Their cats won't eat them. Their cats won't eat them. That's another big plus that's actually not mentioned in the articles. But, hey, if anyone's listening, it totally should be. Yeah, so that's just that's just suicide. 
And that's like the tip of the iceberg. Another phenomena I discovered as I was reading through these publications is hotel room invasion. Who knew that was a thing? That's extremely disturbing to me. Yeah, I mean, like, you go somewhere to get away and somebody's going to come in and bother you on your own. I mean, like, your own vacation. It's just so unjust. Apparently, according to some of the security information I read, hotel and motel room invasion is on the rise. Definition of a hotel room invasion is someone breaking into a room that has an occupant with the agenda of carrying out a violent crime, um, which can include robbery, assault, rape, and or murder. And it's perceived as being especially heinous because they know someone's in there and they're going in with that intent. It's not trying to go into an abandoned house. It's not trying to break into a car. It's more confrontational. Right, it's a very intentional act. Some people think it's going out just because of the increased security. In other places. Right. And so this is a place where people can still be vulnerable. Yes. Homes have better security, gas stations, banks. But you're not going to put cameras in guest rooms because that's an invasion of privacy. People are able to slip in and out a little bit more easily. I haven't read some literature on, like, the most common ruses people use when entering hotels. And, like, flower deliveries on the list. And, like, I mean, it's just, like, so Ocean's Eleven. I don't know. I can't get my head around it. But apparently it happens. Yeah, confidence man. Confidence man, yes. And when I think of bad things going on in hotels, you do think of prostitution. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. I love this quote from Boston police officer saying, Every hotel has a hooker in them, especially along the major thoroughfares. That's the bottom line. People have no clue. Yeah, that's charming. I feel like that's going to be dialogue and something soon. According to the article that this is from, which was written in a Boston paper, hotels are sort of eager to put the kibosh on the prostitution that's going on inside of them. So they are on the lookout for women who pay in cash and want to change rooms often and request frequent supplies of new towels. Oh, God, I'm so going to be on this list. I change rooms and request towels like crazy. (laughs) Now see how you're funding this podcast. Oh, yeah, you caught me. We'd have better equipment. They also cite that they leave right after checking. Like, they don't actually stay in the rooms. Like, they'll come in and then, like, leave. And they see them leaving and they don't come back. Wait, you got to put the numbers. They leave anywhere from 10 minutes to two hours later. That's just a shame. But, Aww. yeah. <laughs> According to an incarcerated pimp who was interviewed by the Huffington Post, some hotels are in on the act. Some holiday inns, stuff like that. They were involved in the activity. Some hotels, they don't know what's going on, but they have employees that like to make a little money on the side. Just like the girls. Just like the girls. So, suicide, murder, burglary, rape, prostitution. What do we have left? So, sex and rock and roll. Oh, drugs, drugs, drugs. drugs. Okay, yes. So, there's also uh, apparently a growing number of meth labs based out of hotels? It's a great place to do it because if something happens, then you don't have to worry about the cleanup. I guess you don't blow up your house. Or your trailer. Or your RV in the middle of the desert. But yeah, apparently, in one article I read, a police officer who was interviewed said that they had found 10 meth labs in a small county in Tennessee. And of the 10, five had been based out of motels. And that was a huge jump from years past. That article was after a meth lab in a motel had blown up. Fun fact. Fun fact. So... You know, the reason I wanted to show you this video is that it takes place at a hotel in California with this crazy history. And it was formerly known as the Hotel 
Cecil, now called the Stay on Main. Well, that's a much catchier name. Yeah, just in case you want to stay there after this podcast. Right. Isn't American Horror Story the season, like, based on it? In a way, yes. Okay. So, yeah, I have been seeing it pop up around the internet. Right, it's been very active because American Horror Story Hotel is in a way based on it. And the Elisa Lamb video has gone completely viral online. Tell me about the Hotel Cecil. So this hotel, you're going to love it because Mm -hmm. there are suicides, murders. Okay, cool. Serial killers. Super. And of course, always Satanists, right? Maybe? Yeah. Okay. So this is a hotel in Los Angeles. It's near Skid Row. It was built in the 1920s as a hotel for businessmen to come into town and spend a night or two. But soon it was upstaged by the nicer hotels in downtown Los Angeles. And during the Great Depression, it became more of a transient hotel. Okay. And it kind of transitioned to a single occupancy business. Do you know what that is? No. So that's the kind of hotel where you'll have a room and you'll stay, maybe you'll stay with multiple people and you know, share a bathroom. Fun. So it's a place where you could have long-term tenants that rented rooms on the cheap. On the cheap, as Scalia said. Yes. So now it still exists. It's got renamed. And they tried to sell it to Europeans and people traveling as like a hostel. And they have other rooms for rent as well. So they're hoping that people in Europe don't have Google, is what you're telling me. Yes, exactly. Okay, let's talk about the suicides. That seems like a good place to start. Yeah, so most of them happen in the 50s and 60s. Okay, interesting. I wonder why they clustered like that. Oh, one of the first ones was Helen Gurney. She was in her 50s, and she jumped from the seventh floor window and landed on the Cecil Hotel's marquee. Well, that has some pistache, yeah? And, of course, Julia Moore. She jumped from the eighth floor window in 1962, and she left some interesting things in her room, including a bus ticket from St. Louis... 59 cents, and an Illinois bank account with $1,800 in it. This one's really crazy. Pauline Otten, she was 27. She jumped from a ninth floor window after an argument with her estranged husband in 1962. And as she jumped out the window, she landed on George Gianni, who was 65, walking on the sidewalk, 90 feet below. What happened to George Gianni? Oh, well, they both died. Okay, that's an urban legend in and of itself. Like, someone but it killed, really happened. I know, at this hotel. So someone jumps from a window, lands on someone else, and they both die. This feels, like, so made up. But you're telling me, not only did it happen, but it happened at this hotel. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, someone that I know you love hmm. stayed at this hotel. Richard Ramirez. Okay, I don't love Richard Ramirez. I wish you'd stop saying that I love serial killers. And stop Googling them all the time and sending me gifts of them. I can't. (laughs) Okay, so let me tell you about Richard Ramirez and why I think he's so fascinating. So Richard Ramirez was born on February 29th, 1960 in El Paso, Texas. His dad was a railroad worker and he spent a lot of his youth sort of getting into trouble. He had a cousin who was a Green Beret in Vietnam, and if that doesn't spell, I'm probably going to have some crazy attached to it. I don't know what does. But this cousin came back from Vietnam and made friends with Ramirez, who was about 14 at the time, and apparently would share his 
drugs like LSD and pot with young Richard, Ricky, as his family called him. Not only would he share his drugs, but he would also share his war stories, which included showing him photos of a woman's severed head and saying, yeah, I raped that bitch before I killed her and things like that. Classy. Yeah, classy. Family bonding. Again, stories your uncle tells you. That's the theme for this episode. So after being exposed to that, it's no wonder that Richie was a little warped. Okay, so in addition to sharing charming family photos with little Richie, his uncle also shot his wife in the face in front of him. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, family bonding at its finest. So he was there. He was there. He was in the room. He witnessed it. His uncle was found not guilty by reason of insanity, but reprimanded to a state-run mental institution for four years. With good good genes. Good genes. Good genes. But also, I mean, his uncle probably had a legit claim to PTSD, having been a Green Beret in Vietnam. Um, Maybe not so much for Ramirez, although he was absolutely nuts. So after being fired from the Holiday Inn, he relocated to California, and he began just killing folks, as you do. Good old killing spree. Yeah, and you know where he lived while he was in California, right? Of course, the beloved Hotel Cecil. Right, the stay on Main. Called, got the cute operator, and requested a room. No, he paid $14 a night, and he stayed there. He was in Los Angeles as well as San Francisco, and he was eventually convicted of 13 murders, though it's supposed that there are more. For example, his first victim was a young girl who was found in the basement of a... Hotel? A hotel! Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's not correct. Not the seasonal hotel. No, different hotel. It was in San Francisco, but originally, because it was an outlier from the dates that he was very active, it wasn't considered to be one of his murders, and it was only later attributed to him after DNA evidence was tested. Yeah, it's thought that after he would kill somebody, he would throw his bloody clothes in the dumpster behind the hotel, Cecil, and then go in through the back door. Well, yeah, the back door man, as you know, it's a thing. So, as with any serial killer, you kind of have to discuss their methods. You can't just leave that up in the air. So, he was never very organized. He was kind of an opportunistic killer. He would sneak into people's homes while they were sleeping and usually cause mayhem. But eventually, after a few killings, he kind of figured out what he liked to do. And he would shoot the husband while he was sleeping, and the wife would wake up, and then he would torture and assault her and usually stab her. So he would use two different weapons at each crime scene. And in one case, he even gouged a woman's eyes out and stored them in her jewelry box for safekeeping. Oh, well, at least he put them in a nice place. Right. But again, he was not a very organized killer. Like, he didn't take them with him as trophies. He didn't have, like, a ritualistic way of displaying things. It was just kind of whatever he felt like. He was a very id-driven killer. Like I said, not organized is what I keep coming back to. Did he have a motivation behind this? I mean, what did he say about doing all these things? Oh, that he liked it. Good. (laughs) That was really it. Uh, Ramirez has some amazing quotes. He also, like, he did things like he drew a an inverted pentagram on the thigh of one of his victims in lipstick. And he's a bit, he's a Satanist. He He's, like, an actual, honest-to-God, like, probably would go knocking on doors for Satan kind of guy. Like, he... But not the nice type of Satanist. No, like, no. They're good Satanist and bad Satanist, right? And he's more of the bad Satanist. But he really does genuinely, like, like him some Lucifer. And he was, one of his quotes that I found was, Tell Satan you love him. 
And he would do things while he was on trial, like flash a little pentagram on the inside of his hand to the cameras, you know, to the media or to the jurors. But yeah, he was a talker man. He liked to talk about what he'd done. Some things he said are, we've all got the power to kill in our hands. Most of us are afraid to use it. Those who aren't control life itself. So you can imagine the behavioral sciences unit just kind of lost their shit over this guy. Another one, even psychopaths have emotion. Then again, maybe not. Love it. Yeah, and he says, you don't understand me. You're not expected to. You're not capable of it. I'm beyond your experience. So I'm guessing that after he was caught, he received the death sentence. He did. Um, he actually denied it and like said everything was being pinned on him. He was one of the things he said when he was arrested was they're gonna blame all the murders on me poor richie he resisted at first and then when he was convicted he was like big deal death always came with the territory violent delights have violent ends is another thing he said famously also he said upon his receiving his sentence you know to die in the gas chamber he says big deal death always came with the territory see in disneyland Colorful, colorful character. He was oh. You just you just killed thirteen people and got sentenced to the gas chamber. What are you gonna do now? I'm going to Disneyland. Do you think that's where they got the idea for that promotional oh. campaign? It was eighty five. Let's look into it and see that's how long about, that's been going that's on. It was. I think it was the eighties. Oh my god. Now let's start that urban legend. Can you please make that happen, internet? Yes. So he was sentenced to die in the gas chamber, but he unfortunately deprived the state of California of all that glory by dying of B-cell lymphoma in 2013 while awaiting his death sentence. Also, another thing that always kind of creeped me out about Ramirez was he was 24 when he was doing all of this killing. You know, on a side note, yeah, the serial killer that stalked our town when we were in college. Yeah. Derek Todd Lee just died in a hospital before he was able to be put to death by the state of Louisiana. Yeah, it's unfortunate when people are on death row and they have the indecency to die of natural causes. So, speaking of serial killers, you would think that one serial killer was enough to give a bad name to a hotel. One would think, yes. But guess what? What? There's another serial killer. Actually, before we get into that... It is rumored that Elizabeth Short, the Black Doll, yeah, stayed at the hotel during her missing period of time. Now that is just a rumor, but I think it's a fun one to comment on. Right. I mean, it's hard not to want that to be true if you're looking at a place in Los Angeles that has such a dark history. I mean, how would that be substantiated? But how could it be disproven? Let's just say that maybe it's true. We're going to talk about the Black Dahlia on another episode. Just you wait. We'll just save that story for later. Just let that simmer, folks. And another serial killer is associated with this hotel. Let's call this the bonus round. An extra serial killer. Do, do, do. Mr. Jack Untenwerger. Unterverger. Okay, I know about Unterverger. So, originally what I knew about Unterverger made me think that he was sort of just a, a fan of Ramirez. 
He's kind of labeled as that. Yeah, and I, I felt like, oh, well, he killed three people, no big deal. Like, it's not 13, it's not pentagrams, it's not that interesting. Right, almost like a copycat. Copycat. Just when you do a cursory read about him, you're like, okay. And he's easy to dismiss. He's not a good guy. Not an uncle you'd want to have drinks with. I'm just throwing that out there. But he's not a great guy. But it doesn't seem like he's colossal and like he has his own story in his own right. But after reading more about him, I think he's quite possibly more interesting than Ramirez. Maybe just not as good quoting. No, I don't think he has quite the quote banner, although he was a writer. So, Unterberger's story is interesting. He was convicted of murder in 1960 in Austria, where he was originally from. And he became a writer during his time in prison. And he wrote poems and plays and stories, and eventually his own autobiography, which is a name in a... I'm not even going to try and pronounce. You may Google it at your leisure. So... Let's not pause and read that. No. Feel free to not. So, he was a brilliant writer, apparently, and during his time in prison, he was taken up as a personal charge of the kind of Austrian glitterati, the cafe intellectuals, if you will. The literati? The literati. Okay. So he's taken up as a personal charge of that group, and they start petitioning the government to parole him. And the government's like, no, we cannot parole him because he has not even served his minimum sentence yet. So as soon as his 15 years went by for this murder of an 18-year-old woman whom he killed using the straps of her brassiere to strangle her, as soon as that amount of time went by, the petition or the cause to get him out of prison gained momentum and he was freed. I mean, one person that was really campaigning for his release was a Nobel Prize winner. So you think if someone wins the Nobel Prize, They're pretty solid judgment, or so you'd think. So they were on board. However, in a just twist to end all twists, maybe the best twist since Oedipus, poster boy for rehabilitation may have not been so rehabilitated. So the literati campaigned for his release. Mm Mm-hmm. And they, they did it. They did it. And as soon as he was released, he began working as a journalist, and his plays were produced, and children read his autobiography in school, and his stories for children were produced for radio, and he just sort of had this wide-reaching fame. In addition to all of that, he began killing people again. He would kill people, kill women, prostitutes, and actually report on the murders using his capacity as a journalist to do so, and never mentioned that he might have, you know, done it. He apparently killed one woman in Czechoslovakia and six in Austria before he went to the United States to do research for an article. He went to L.A., and during his time in L.A., he had to stay somewhere. So why not the Hotel Cecil? Now, did he stay there because Ramirez stayed there? It's speculated. It's speculated that he may have had a fascination with a Night Stalker, which is Ramirez's media name. That really is a great name. It is a great name. I can't believe it hadn't been used before. I mean, they should make a movie about that. They should make a movie about that. With Lou Diamond Phillips. Which they are. Yeah, they are. You know who else they should make a movie about? Unterverger. You know who would play Unterverger in a movie? John Malkovich, because he already did. It happened. So that's the difference between Ramirez and Unterverger. Unterverger is John Malkovich, and Ramirez is Lou Diamond Phillips. I think that kind of sums up the differences. So, 
Unterberger ventures out of Austria to go to Los Angeles. During his time in Los Angeles, he's researching the differences between the penal system in the United States and that in Europe. So naturally, he does ride-alongs with the LAPD. It's Colin Gacy. Sort of, except that he's actually in the car, not just running away from them. When Gacy hung out with the cops, he took Well, he bought him breakfast and things. That was nice. It was nice of him. But they knew they were surveilling him. This is just some guy posing as above-board journalist who's, like, doing research. We found out after recording the... Killer Clowns episode. That the guy that was selling Gacy's paintings is from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where we used to live. Of course he is. It made perfect sense after we found it out. But, yeah, so his art dealer's from Baton Rouge. Get your head around that. So, during his time in Los Angeles, he stayed at the Hotel Cecil, he did ride-alongs with the police, and he killed three women. Of course. Yeah. So, within the 18 months after his release, he had killed six women in Austria, one in Czechoslovakia, and three in the United States. Good job on that parole. Yeah, I have a feeling he wasn't doing much community service. Yeah, no. All of the women were savaged with tree branches and strangled using their own braziers. But they wish they were bra burners. Bet they do. That's terrible. Was eventually arrested, convicted. After he was convicted, he used that expert knowledge of uh, noosery that he had come to over the years of killing ladies. Um, is noosery a word? Noosery is a word now. Wordification. So he uses that knowledge and creates a noose for himself using the drawstring from his prison issue pants and hangs himself before he can be sentenced. Another story to go down the history of the Hotel Cecil. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this brings us to the most recent tragedy that has occurred at this hotel. So Miss Lisa Lamb, who we talked about at the top of the podcast with the very strange video... She was from Vancouver, and she was taking a West Coast tour, and had stopped in L.A. and stayed at the... Hotel Cecil. And initially, she was put in with someone else, shared a room with somebody, and they said she was really just acting odd, and so she was moved to her own room. Now, it's important to point out that Lamb does have a history of bipolar disorder and depression. She was prescribed Wellbutrin, Lamictal, Seroquel, and Effexor, which are a mix of antidepressants, antipsychotics, and epileptics, which are used to treat bipolar disorder. So she went missing. How old was she? Yeah, so she was only 21 years old. Okay. So she went missing. And this just occurred. This was January. Was somebody with her? How did... She was alone. She was traveling alone. So how did people know that she went missing? So she went missing. They searched for her body. Mm-hmm. Searched for her. Searched for, some, searched for some sort of evidence and could not find anything. Okay. And as time went on, residents at the hotel started complaining of... This funny tasting water. When they turned oh, no. the tap on, it was again. This is an dark. urban legend all to itself. This but is it's, one of the oldest ones in the book. But it's not. Oh no! They continue to have low water pressure and uh, bad tasting dark water. Exactly. One oh the, man! One of the employees went to investigate. Went to the water tanks on the roof and found her body decomposing in one of the water tanks. So the guests had been drinking body water? Exactly. Oh. 
It had been there. And that's how they found her? Right. Been there for like two weeks. No. Yuck. But whenever they were trying to find her, before they actually found her body, the police released security footage that we discussed at the top of the episode. I do encourage everyone to take a second and watch this video. We'll put a link in the info for the podcast because it's, it blows your mind. It's, it's a crazy video. Yeah, I at first, like when you start watching it, you're like, okay... And you kind of wait for it, and as it goes on, it's just absolutely captivating. I don't know how many times we've watched it since finding it. I mean, we can't get over it. It's just bizarre behavior. Well, it definitely went viral, and it's it's a rabbit hole if you start searching about Elisa Lamb, because there are a million theories Oh, about and some of them what? are, break out the tinfoil hats, baby, we are going high fringe. I mean, like, it is incredible what people have come up with it's great right so this happened in 2013 and since it happened since the footage went up even before the body was found people were like w t f right it's important to know that the autopsy report did state that there was no evidence of physical or sexual trauma no evidence of any drugs that she did not was not prescribed in her blood so that just adds fuel to the fire. So she wasn't on, like, street drugs when she was having this... I'm going to call it an episode because it is bizarre. Whatever's going on in that video is not something within the realm of normal human behavior. Well, that brings us to all the theories that surround this video. Because there really is an unsolved case. No one knows what happened. Her body was found naked in the water tank... And her clothes are found in the tank as well. And also, the tank is not something you can just jump in. And if you look at photos, you would need a ladder to get up there. It's a big, heavy lid. And it would be very difficult to get into. Right, but it's not like a disc-shaped lid that you like have to lift and slide over. It's like a, It's got a hinge on it, like a commercial garbage receptacle. So, feasibly, she could have lifted the lid. My question is, like... Okay, so I'm really bothered by the fact that she's naked in the tank. Because what did she do? Did she, like, climb to the top of the ladder, undress while standing on the ladder, lift the lid, throw her clothes in, and then jump in behind her clothes? Yeah, it's really crazy. It's one of the reasons why there's so many ideas. One of the main thoughts, and a fairly reasonable thought, is it was some kind of murder. And then it could have been done by, you know, a hotel worker or a guest. Or Richard Ramirez's ghost. Definitely. Ooh, wait, when did he die? He died in 2013. Oh, it definitely was his ghost. It was definitely his ghost. We solved it. Done. Okay. You know, like in the video, it looks like she might be talking to somebody. She's waving at them. She's hiding. Right. It's, there's definitely a part of the video in the middle where it looks like she is communicating with someone. At the beginning of the video, it looks like she's anticipating being followed because she hides in the corner near the number panel. And, you know, it's it's basically the only place in the elevator that you could walk by and not see someone. And she looks pretty scared to me, honestly. She looks very frightened. It's hard for me to believe that there wasn't someone else there. And another thing that lends to the idea that perhaps it was a hotel employee is the roof requires a key. It was supposedly locked. And alarmed. And alarmed. And no alarm sounded. And if 
she didn't have a key, how'd she get up there? Right, some people even say that this footage is edited. There's a time mark on it, but it's kind of fuzzed out. Obscure. You're not able to read it. The thing I've read most often about this is that for every four seconds in the video, there was three seconds of actual time, so it's been slowed down just a little bit. Another thing I've read a lot is there are 45 seconds missing from people who think that they've watched the ticker closely enough to observe that. They have better eyes than I do. Yeah, and more time. <laughs> no, but it, it is a rabbit hole to go down all these theories. You know, one that's great is that there's a conspiracy theory. Mm. And of course, when you say conspiracy, you have to say... Illuminati? The Illuminati. I was guessing. I can't believe it's actually the Illuminati. Okay. Yeah, there's crazy theories. There's Illuminati assassination. You know, before she had tweeted articles about cloaking devices. Like invisibility. Right, which is a real thing. The United uh-huh. States really is working on that with South Korea. But that after what? she... Yeah, it really is. Okay. But Another after, urban legend all into itself. Yeah. And that after this, there's several... Facebook accounts popped up with her name and one of them had just one friend and there was this military guy that was working on this stuff. With her name? Right, and there was this company related to like Invisible Light that's associated with it and of course has the triangle as its logo. Okay, yeah, I, I did read about that. And like the websites disappeared, but it looked fake to begin with, but they were in the top floor of the Hotel Cecile and like weirdness and stuff. But, yeah, I think besides that it was a murder, most probable is that it was self-induced. Induced? Induced. What do you mean, induced? Say that it was a suicide. Okay. I mean, she... But why wouldn't that have been on the the report, the autopsy report? So it's hard to really prove that. So I did actually read the autopsy report, all 26 pages, because Sam was trying to pronounce all of these medical terms. Don't make fun of me. And I was just like... Don't make fun of me. At least I was reading the first-hand documents, okay? Like, let me read this. Um, But, you know, she was a known person with bipolar disorder. She did have an active social media life, and she had some posts about how she felt like she was have a relapse of her symptoms. Mm -hmm. And she was on several medications with it. And so, reading through the autopsy report, there's no signs of physical trauma, no no kind of petechiae, broken bones, um, blood pooling or bruising that'd be associated with some sort of physical altercation. Okay. But one thing I thought that was interesting that I can't believe I did not see on any of the crazy blogs that we spent way too much time reading. Yeah. That they found dexedrine. I don't know what that means. You know, in her stuff. What is dexedrine? So, but the important thing is it wasn't prescribed. So dexedrine is a stimulant. It's something you can take like an ADHD medication. So like Adderall? Similar. Is it street name? Like what would you... I mean, just any of those medicines are called like speed, things like that. But they didn't find it in their system? Well, with their system, they weren't able to test everything and it wasn't really great... You know, test because she had been lying in a pool of water for a long amount of time. I thought it was interesting that she had dextrin because someone that's bipolar that's taking a stimulant medication that can, not always, but can stimulate a manic episode. And now with bipolar, you think of, you know, the movie idea of bipolar like, oh, you have one mood and you have another and you're switching, or like you might call your girlfriend bipolar or something. But a true 
bipolar disorder is someone that has long episodes of a low period. This is bipolar type 1 disorder. And like a depressive period. Mm-hmm. And then a manic period. And so in this manic period, you would be very active. In med school, I remember hearing a story about a woman that bought a car, a convertible, mm-hmm. filled it with shrimp. What? And shrimp, shrimp only in Louisiana. Only Louisiana. <laughs> and then, you know, went on about her day, left her car parked somewhere, kind of forgot about it, and you know, the shrimp rotted. Okay. I always think of that when I think of a manic episode that really describes it because it's almost this irrational behavior where you have these ideas and you just want to do them and you'll do these kind of outlandish things. Uh-huh. But you can have psychotic episodes related to manic periods. So... Psychotic. That sounds like all right. Right. It's just a story. 